We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. I'm your host, Nick Faye. With me, as always, Jack Manuel. What's up, Jack? It's buzz time, ladies and gents. Yes, it is buzz time. We're giving you a special episode. You know, we had a little break in the schedule, so we figured we'd tackle some different topics. we got a couple fan questions as well. But as always, check out the buzz on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, OTGBasketball.com, NetsRepublic.com, YouTube, and Dash Radio. Any type of support is appreciated. Reviews, shares, retweets, whatever it is. But to get us started, Mark D, YouTube user, had a question for us. Should the Nets trade, let go, or keep Dinwiddie and D'Lo? Um, I'm thinking if we're talking long-term, Nick, if we're talking right now, I think it makes the most sense to keep them. We need to see what their value is uh, right now and see what, you know, D'Angelo Russell is continuing to grow as a player. You know, Dinwoody has shown, you know, uh, even more growth as, as an offensive force as well. I would, in if I'm Sean Marks, if I'm uh, in that front office, I'm keeping at least Dinwoody. Um, obviously, the D'Angelo Russell situation is a little more complicated with his impending rest- restricted free agency at the same time. Um, so for me, I'm keeping both because I just, I don't know, I, I'm all about building from within. But at the same time, if you're sure Marks and you have deals out there and trades available, then I'm sure he's going to look at them. You know, I heard a couple of podcasts mentioning the fact that, you know, if Kemba Walker becomes on the market and you know he, he decides to leave Charlotte, is that a, uh, an asset we sort of look to try and get into? Uh, obviously, he, he is a New Yorker, so is that an option? Um, you know, you can't necessarily keep him, D'Lo, and Spencer Dinwiddie all at the same time with Karis Avert set to come back as well. So uh, I think it makes the most sense to keep them, but if there are opportunities available to explore different options, then, uh, you know, it's I'm not going one way or another because I think that is the way that the Brooklyn Nets front office is as well. They're generally quite fluid in the way they view their assets. And, you know, if we're, I'm waffling on a little bit, but if we look back to, you know, when the Jimmy Butler news was coming around, it was only essentially Karis Levert and Jared Allen were the non-trade assets. They were the, the untouchables. So, you know, for D'Angelo and Spencer to sort of be there, they've all 
uh, Spencer, especially um, more at the start of the season and even last season, was a, a trade asset. So I think that there'll be uh, a, in, there'll be conversations around them. Uh, we obviously won't hear about them because you know the Nets like to keep them uh, quite in house. But uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well, Nick. Yeah, I think in this situation, you have to keep one of them. And that's because the point guard position in the NBA is just so important. And we've seen what happens. The Nets have had their lead guard go down year after year. You know, it's Jeremy Lin, Jeremy Lin, D'Angelo missed half last year. We saw Karis LeVert go down this year. I think you keep one of these guys at least. You know, you could keep both, but I think at least one of them because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where maybe you start to fill out the rest of the roster. You have Karis LeVert at the two guard. You sign a small forward or something or a power forward. Then you have Jared Allen. Then you have no point guard who can get them the ball. We know Karis can play it a little bit, but I think he's best as that, like, two-guard role that he played this season. So I think right now you definitely try to keep the guy unless somebody comes with a big-time offer. And I think Dinwiddie with that extension number makes a ton of sense because if, even if you were looking at a guy like Kemba Walker, you still need a backup guard. And like we've talked about, Dinwiddie at that number around 12, mill a year is not too bad so I think you at least keep one of these guys I don't think you get rid of both because the team isn't talented enough and it's not like their draft pick is it's not like they're looking to have a high draft pick for three years to kind of gather assets I think you want to make sure you keep one point guard but if, a, if someone comes in and says all right we're you know we're going to offer you a big package for one of these guys you're like all right we'll send one of them out but we're definitely going to keep the other I think I would agree with you I'd kind of lean towards Dinwiddie just because of that number value and restricted free agents for D'Angelo could be a little bit scary where you could see a team come in even a team like let's say the Chicago Bulls want to come in we know they offer big uh, offer sheets or they've signed a Zach Levine to that big deal maybe they want to offer D'Lo a 20 million dollar deal or something along those lines and he hasn't really performed at that level so I think Dinwiddie seems like a safer bet and if somebody offered a great package for D'Angelo it makes sense but also you know the counter argument D'Angelo's only 22 he's already showing these flashes so I think you don't you don't look to get rid of these guys or let them go I think you you at least keep one and then if somebody comes and offers a big package you send out one of the guys yeah, Nick, if you're Sean Marks, and um, we've obviously got it as a question as well, would you rather pay Dinwiddie or deal? I think it's probably best to talk about that now. Um, the, obviously, the deal is on the table for Spencer Dinwiddie. It's four years, 48, around that mark, 47 and a half. You know, it became available as of, you know, the Knicks game essentially that day. Um, if he gets that offered, does that uh, put D'Angelo Russell in place a little bit? Sort of go, okay, you've got to prove it now if you want us to pay you as well. Or do you see it more likely playing out the rest of the season and, and then both guys either get an offer sheet or neither do because, you know, D'Angelo does have that quite high cap hold, $21 million or something around that uh, range, I believe. How do you see that all playing out? Yeah, I think it would put pressure on D'Angelo. I think it'd be like, all right, well, they already locked up Dinwiddie. It's not too high of a number where they couldn't re-sign both of them, but I think it would put a little bit of pressure on him. And like you said, with that cap hold, it kind of gives them more flexibility where, all right, you know, we renounce his cap hold. He's no longer a restricted free agent. He can sign anywhere. We could still possibly sign him, but it'd be highly unlikely. We go after, let's say, Kemba, Kyrie. We miss out on both of them. Now Spencer Dinwiddie's your starting point guard for next year, which I don't think is terrible. Yeah, I think Spencer Dinwiddie's probably still a top 15-ish point guard probably in the NBA right now with the way that he's been playing. Another uh, year of development too. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's there's plenty of areas he can continue to develop his game on. You know, he still is, you know, in his mid-20s, he's, there's no way that he's, you know, probably reached his ceiling. Uh, I think, obviously, we, we've talked about it plenty of times that Dido has a much higher ceiling. But if you're... Let's make some comparisons in terms of DeAndre Russell for numbers and sort of contracts, Nick. You know, you've got a guy at Miles Turner who's on a four-year, $64 million deal. Uh, Levine's, I think, at four seventy-six. What number is a number that you think is fair for DeAndre Russell? I think as well uh, in the Brooklyn the, uh, Brooklyn Beat, uh, the piece that he did for Nets, he put out four mil. 
four years, 80 million. I think that's a little bit lofty, but um, I'm interested to hear what you think is a fair number. I'm going to take an easy way out of this one. I think a lot depends on how he plays the rest of the year. You know, that's okay. going to be a big thing. Is he consistent? You know, we saw a game against the Knicks where he didn't necessarily shoot well, but he had a good impact on the game. Also, Kenny still seems to lean towards Dinwiddie in certain situations. It'll be interesting to see if D'Angelo can kind of earn that trust as the season progresses. It's also hard to tell the Nets just don't have really high expectations for D'Angelo where they're trying to really teach him and kind of turn him to an elite type of, you know, playmaker out there, elite point guard, somebody like a Chris Paul that's always making the right pay, right play. That's something that I'm kind of keeping an eye on. I think anything over 20 mil is just very risky because you're betting on him becoming a great player. You know, it's going to be impossible to tell by the end of the year if he's going to be a great player unless for some reason he just turns it up. But I think Anything between that 15 and 20 mark is probably doable. Anything over 20, I think, would be too much. And that 20 number, he'd have to produce at a really high level. I'm looking at, like, let's say, eight. I would like to see the assist number get up. That would be the biggest number for me. Get that up to maybe, you know, close to eight assists, 18 points. And I want to see the efficiency pick up. I'm not going to pay someone $20 million to shoot 40% from the field in a mid-30s in three-point percentage. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of guys who are on no, not the best of contracts, but this is these are the sort of deals that you're paying for potential. You know, exactly. Turner, Aaron Gordon, Zach Levine haven't proven anything yet, so to speak. They've shown glimpses, as has our boy D'Lo. Um, so it is a potential deal at the same time. But the fact is, you know, D'Lo had that goal of playing 82 games, and I think that gives us a larger body of work to sort of judge him on. Whereas you're comparing it to Zach Levine, he had you know missed a, a large chunk of the season due to uh, that recovery from the ACL injury. So I think the Nets are in a, a bit of a better spot. Obviously, knocking on wood the fact that D'Angelo Russell doesn't get injured himself, but you know he's already played. You know most uh, he's played every game. I think we're at about 25 or 26. So you know all signs are pointing to that he is going to have a healthy season. He looks good-ish, but um yeah, I think 50, 60 games time uh, when we make that judgment, it'll be fascinating to see what that number comes out at. And I think another point other than the on-court stuff, or it's still on-court, but it's not as much of, you know, the tangible things and the stats. I think it's the effort we see defense. We saw in Toronto. We saw in the Knicks game. I like when I see him put in that extra effort. I like to see him get in the hustle plays, get on the floor a little bit. Obviously, he wants to maintain the health. But just showing he really believes in the team, he's willing to get up. I think this was like an inside or this was a rumor that was mentioned around. Somebody said that sometimes D'Angelo, you know, tries to play it too cool where he kind of wants to be almost stylish on the court instead of just, like, getting down and dirty. You know, obviously that's not a full part of his game, but I think that's something that the Nets want to see him do to kind of maybe be a little bit more interested in investing a lot of money in him. Yeah, I think we've sort of seen, you know, we know how sort of savvy he is in sort of his persona, D'Angelo. He is a very slick dude. He's, you know, he's you know making GQ appearances, as did Spencer Dinwiddie. But, you know, he has this, you know, awesome, very media-friendly persona, you know, the fans love him. He's got, you know, the the millions of followers on all platforms. So, you know, he has to sort of a, a reputation to sort of live up to, so to speak. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, that changed throughout the season. He is still a kid, you know, 22 years old. You know, he's finding who he is in this league. And you know, if you're making comparison to some of the great guards going around, you know, some of the guards who have not have been notorious in not playing defense, guys like Russell Westbrook and James Harden, They've bought in, well, I mean, you can argue with James Harden maybe a little bit, but those two are starting to play some, you know, comparable, uh, comparably average defense, you know, and, and at least showing effort. So I think, you know, D'Angelo, if he wants to be the leader of this team, if we want him to be, 
then he needs to set the tone from the sort of defensive standpoint as well. And I think, you know, the past two performances, he has shown that. And I think that that is, you know, the, a sort of barometer for him. And having guys like, you know, Jarrett Dudley, Damari Carroll, holding him accountable in that sense, guys like Ed Davis as well, uh, I think that's going to be a, a good thing for him going forward. I agree. What would be the number for you? What would be the max number you would re-sign him at? Let's say if he finishes the season averaging something close to what he's averaged since the uh, Karras of her injury, which is around 20 points, you know, 41% from the field, 32% from three, six assists, and a little bit over three turnovers. I think it'd be marginally less than Zach Levine around that sort of mark of four years, 75 million. Uh, I, I don't want to go late 70s. I think, you know, early to mid 70s is fair-ish. But yeah, I, I would. my ideal number would be like 460, which I think would be somewhat of a bargain deal because, you know, you're paying for a guy who is going, only going to get better. And uh, I think Sean Marks is quite crafty in how and quite wily in how he sort of structures deals and such and, you know, works the sort of cap space uh, that we sort of uh, are really savoring right now. So, I, I mean, the number will be what it'll be. But at the same time, I can't see Sean Marks doing an overpay, even though, you know, he has in the past with... Uh, some offer sheets that he's put out. I'm giving you a nice segue then. Yeah, a nice segue, but just touching on D'Angelo real quick, I think you you hit on it perfectly, Jack. The incentive-based contract would be ideal for him. You know, becoming an all-star, averaging, you know, a field goal percentage of something or the turnover or turnover ratio or something. Incentive-based contract for him would make a lot of sense. But thank you for the segue. Going to our next question from Twitter user at underscore D underscore rock underscore. His question is, what if the Nets landed some of those offer sheets referring to, you know, Tyler Johnson, uh, Alan Crabb, who they ended up trading for, um, Montionis from Houston, who's no longer in the league, and Otto Porter Jr. What would be the case if they land? I mean, I don't think they would have been able to land all these guys the way the contracts are structured, especially if they landed, you know, Tyler Johnson and uh, Crabb at the same time. But where would the Nets be if they got some of these different guys? Would they be Man. a worse place, a better place? What are you thinking? I love the what-if game, Nick. Uh, the what-if game is always fun when it comes to basketball talk. I think that if you're looking at what the players are right now in their respective organizations, Tyler Johnson, who has been somewhat injury-prone, but, you know, is an athletic, you know, youngish prospect. Uh, I think that within the Brooklyn Nets organization, they would be better plays because I think that they would be utilized better. That might be sacrilege to any Miami Heat fans who might be listening. But I think because of the glut of guards that they have and the sort of deep, weird roster that they have i think tyler johnson would be better utilized but at the same time you know where would he sort of fit in the sort of scheme of things where we have guys like d'angelo russell spencer dimwitty you know i think and and caris levert would caris levert have pan out to be the player that he is i think otto porter makes the most sense in terms of basketball fit and i think that you know he could have you know developed maybe more as a guy being able to create his own shot a little bit um and monte Yunus, uh, another guy who uh, on a sort of small-ish offer sheet I think could have given us something as a sort of power forward, uh, stretchy sort of type. But then at the same time, if we do land him, do the Nets go after Rodion's Kuritz in the draft, obviously as a guy who can sort of fill that sort of uh, role going forward. So there's plenty of things in how it affects the other players that we currently have on the roster. If we had have landed these guys that uh, Sean Marks handed out the offer sheets to. I think the Nets would probably be in a worse position. And I think uh, Tyler Johnson, like you mentioned, he probably would be a little bit better on the Nets. But I think at that price tag, I don't see any way his skill set lives up to $19 million. And that's no offense to Tyler Johnson. I think he's a good player, you know, plays hard. I know he's got a couple teeth knocked out from, you know, being such a hustler. But uh, I, I personally think that they'd probably be in a worse position. And like you said, it would have hurt development of other guys. And then Nets would have almost been 
closer to being average or, you know, a below average team, that's a little bit better. But now it kind of allowed them to rebuild another year where maybe if they got both those guys, they would have been a little bit better. And I think that actually would have hurt the development of the team, the culture and whatnot. And then Montiunas is a guy who I think the injury just killed him. You know, he had a back injury. There's not really much you can do about that. Very skilled guy, but it just didn't work out for a reason. He ended up, I think, playing with New Orleans a little bit too the following in that season because it didn't work out with Houston. So uh, I think the Nets are in a lot better position, and they also kind of put these other teams in a worse position. Yeah, I mean, it sort of worked out nicely. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and and absolutely awesome. But if you're sort of using this as a sort of uh, a way to discredit, you know, Sean Marks, you can uh, all the GMs in the league, even the best ones, you know, Danny Ainge offered four first round picks for bloody Justice Winslow and and Frank Kaminsky, all these sort of things. So you know, there are plenty of times where you know the the, the GMs in the league right now are sort of thanking their lucky stars that, you know, some of those things and some of those deals didn't eventually go through. So, you know, there are mistakes that are going to be made. You know, the, the huge mistakes are often, you know, go, you know, without being said, you know, guys like Billy King and uh, Sam, Sam Hinky uh, aren't in the league anymore because of their gargantuan, you know, mistakes, even though, you know, Sam Hinky is, is praised to uh, ungodly levels in Philadelphia. <laughs> Um, it, it's interesting to see how we sort of judge the GMs uh, by their transactions because, you know, a lot can change with these sort of, you know, uh, a really interesting question by D-Rock because, you know, it's it's fascinating to imagine where the Nets could be at. Uh, I don't think we'd be that much better, but I think, you know, we would be because we have some more talented players. But again, uh, I think we're, we're in a, a much more decent space now uh, and going forward because, you know, that salary cap salary cap flexibility we're in a decent spot with our draft picks as well uh, i think it's all working pretty nicely exactly obviously in hindsight you look back in that situation the nets had no town and things worked out with caris Levert. they worked out with chair down they worked out with joe harris they worked out with spencer Dinwiddie. they made the d'angelo trade so obviously now it looks a lot you know better but also cap flexibility wise you know going to this offseason and the next offseason you'd be paying well not the next offseason just the next year you'd be paying tyler johnson alan crab almost 40 million dollars yeah, exactly. You know, that, that's not that's not going to be a winning team. You know what I mean? They might be a little bit better, but it's not going to be a winning team. Otto Porter is the only guy that still would maybe have intrigued me because, like you said, Jack, I think he develops a little bit better with the Nets. That whole Washington culture is just terrible, and I think he would have fit into what the Nets need, and he'd been an upgrade at that four position or three position wherever they play him. Yeah, I think you know you you analyze it with you know everything that you have on the table right now in terms of how they're performing with their respective organizations, and then how you sort of see their culture fit and how they would fit individually on court and off court with the Nets. But uh, I'm pretty happy with what we've got right now, and you know I think you know Sean Marks would be as well. And these are some of the things that you know you look back on as a general manager. You know, in in any sort of thing, you reflect on and go, look. Uh, I made some mistakes here. Maybe I need to be a bit more careful going forward because, you know, a, a guy, Tobias Harris, going forward, has been linked heavily to the to the Nets and uh, and as, as awesome as he's been and he does have age on his side, how much money are you willing to put on the table if you are the Brooklyn Nets? Do you need to get that, you know, even semi-big fish like him to sort of make them relevant and get them into the playoffs? You know, is that the directive from ownership or is it, you know, Sean Marks sort of really wanting to sort of make this a bit more reputable? So uh, I think going forward, uh, I'm hoping Sean Marks is going, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I'm, you know, I can learn from. This is how I can, you know, manage myself and the team going forward. 
Yeah, and I think last offseason kind of proved that Sean Marks was kind of taking that steady approach. He could have offered some big contracts, you know, uh, Aaron Gordon or Jabari Parker if he wanted to, and he ended up not doing that. So I feel pretty confident in what he's doing, and I think you asked your question now. You're trying to build a championship team, and you're signing a big-time player to a big contract. You have to ask yourself, can he be the best player at the, on the, a championship team or the second or third best player at this number because we know we're going to need so many of these guys, and we can't use all the cap if it's not going to work out, and they're not going to help us get to the goal that we want to have. Yeah, the the goal is championship contender, uh, and with you know you want to. I mean, Aldo Porter certainly is going to be the number one guy, and it's so hard to get those guys. And I think the the best way to get them, you know, uh, other than trade, is via the draft. So I think you know Ken Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett, Cam Reddish, Nasir Little, uh, Bol Bol be the number one guy on a championship team. Possibly, uh, I think that that's more likely for the Nets, and that's why, uh, as disappointing as it has been the results so far, you know, a, a lot of people outside the Nets organization are like, that's probably the best way for them to get a bona fide superstar. Your character, because you know, we've seen what we've already done with guys, you know, in the mid teens and 20s. You know, imagine getting a guy like Zion Williamson with all the, you know, the talent in the world, and you know, RJ Barrett, who's an absolute stud. Um, I, I would much rather get one of those guys that sort of, you know, because you also have cost control with those guys at the same time. So uh, I'm praying that the lorry balls happen to fall our way at the same time we do have a, a still promising and, and, and a nice win-loss record by the end of it all too. Yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Obviously, like you said, Jack, getting a guy in the draft maybe could help you get a guy the following season in the offseason, a bigger fish in free agency. It's, you know, all how the dominoes fall and sometimes it's just getting lucky. You know, maybe you sign a guy, maybe they get D'Angelo first deal in this offseason. No one's really that interested to him. He blossoms into an all-star. Same thing which happened with Steph Curry when he's dealing with the ankle injury. Obviously, I don't think D'Angelo gets to that level, but there is potential to get more value for the contract. And I think that's something that you almost need to happen when you're going to have a championship team. Or like you said with the draft, where you have cost control, you're able to kind of manage those contracts moving forward. And that allows you to bring in big fish, something that's happening in Philly right now with Embiid and Simmons not on huge contracts, bringing in Jimmy Butler, having that cat space in the following offseason now moving forward with more but moving on from there we did get some positive notes uh michael scotto uh, of the athletic posted this on twitter and this is a quote from uh, kenny atkinson this is on karis avert i know he's in the gym shooting i'll say that that's about as much as i can say but progressing on schedule and looking forward to having him back so i mean that's as positive as you can get he's already shooting and they're looking forward to having him back so that signals that we're going to see him again this season what were your thoughts when you saw this jack Oh man, it's uh, nothing but good things because you know we we didn't really know what the progress was going to be with this injury. You know, you spoke to uh, Matt Nguyen about you know the sort of uh, really weird nature of the injury as well. So to see Karasovet even doing anything now because you know you want to obviously you know immobilize the foot, sort of you know rest as much as possible. But you know he's already out there shooting, and you know it's it hasn't been that long since he that injury even occurred. So uh, for it to happen so quickly shows that there are good signs and I mean we know how less than a month ago so we know how resilient our boy is we know how quickly he can recover so um it's it's good signs early but you know that's not to to say that there won't be setbacks along the way there won't be tribulations but I I think a guy as headstrong as Carlos Levert and to get this sort of positive feedback because you know you want to sort of make your progress you know have your mini goals along the way and I think that this is one little tick for Carlos and the sort of trainers and the medical staff there at Brooklyn that he can sort of go cool okay now I can shoot what's the next step for me that I need to do. Uh, I need to start to work up to running, to jogging, 
all these different things, hitting on the treadmill, swimming. Uh, it, it's, it's wonderful news, uh, but it's one of many uh, that we hope to see and hope to see Karis tick off in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and this is getting ahead of myself a little bit, but if, let's say Karis LeVert was able to come back sooner than expected and get bounced back and play at the form he did, it would also look really good for the Nets training staff and performance team. And that's something you can sell to free agents as well. So something to keep an eye on in that aspect. Very nicely, Karis LeVert. And I also saw one of the beat writers tweet this as well. They saw Karis LeVert walking around the locker room with no boot on. So that means that his, you know, his foot is probably a little bit more stable now and the dislocation wasn't maybe quite as bad as it looked. Yeah, maybe his body is just so quick when it comes to healing and, and the swelling and stuff. So that's a, a wonderful sign for Karis because we know the the issues that he's had, you know, since his college days in Detroit. So it's a, it's a very, very welcome sign. But, um, you know, like you sort of said, if Karis can get back in the medical stuff, you know, Jared Dudley has raved about, you know, all, all the things that, you know, uh, free agents look for. And, and I think Brooklyn are starting to put themselves on the map. And, you know, if you're comparing it to, say, like a, a Philadelphia who has struggled uh, many a times with their sort of guys in terms of how they've been able to manage. You look at Joel Embiid, you look at Ben Simmons, you look at Markel Fultz, you look at Zaire Smith, uh, Jimmy Butler, who uh, hasn't undergone any sort of issues so far, but we know he is uh, injury prone. And when he starts to sort of, you know, encounter that, you know, in his time in Philadelphia, how are the medical staff going to deal with it there? You know, Chicago uh, with Derek Rose and, and, and other sort of organizations. So, you know, it certainly is, a, like I mentioned in terms of Carol Savert with the ticks, uh, it's a tick for, for the Brooklyn Nets organization and uh, a minor selling point when it comes to attracting free agents. And it also could kind of give some motivation to the other players in the team. You know, we saw the two back-to-back wins. And like we talked about, the East is so bad. The Nets are three games out of the playoffs. You know, you see your, you know, arguably your best player come back, you know, or possibly come back soon. You're right. You're like, all right, long as we can keep this close, we get him back. Maybe we can get over that hump. So definitely a really positive note for the Nets in general. Absolutely. Uh, anything positive, you know, in what was, you know, a, a pretty wholly negative situation, especially early on before the uh, positive news about the recovery, uh, we'll take it and we'll roll with it. Exactly. Like I said to you uh, via DM, music to my ears. Now talking a little bit, Kenny, and obviously he's been arguably, you know, the main discussion of uh, Nets Twitter and that's should the Nets be unhappy with Kenny Atkinson or should they be happy with what he's got the team so where he's got the team so far? Uh, I think that you can't be wholly happy with what he's done, Nick. But I think if you're going, you know, in terms of what he has done so far and if we're basing it purely off this season, he has done more good than bad. You know, the we've, we mentioned on the last pub when we were recapping some of the games, you know, his uh, ability to sort of have that game recognition, when to call the timeouts. You know, D'Angelo Russell, you know, the, the criticisms came of him in terms of playing in crunch time, you know, man management, player management. Uh, I, I think, um, but we also did at the same time in, in the Toronto game, praise him for how he used Ed Davis and, and Jared Allen, how he sort of managed the front court minutes. So, you know, the, he is doing plenty good. And I think you need to compare it to across the league and in terms of, you know, for all the people that are calling for Coach King to be fired, we have, he's by no means one of the best sort of uh, coaches in the NBA. He is not Popovich. He's not Steve Kerr. He's not Brad Stevens. He's not one of these guys. But he is in a tier that is above guys like who I don't necessarily rate, like J.P. Bickerstaff, you know, Igor Kokoshkov, guys who are even unknown. Guys like Jim Boylan, who in two days is already sort of having guys wanting to ditch practice, you know, crazy uh, for professional NBA players. Like that coaching staff is just rough. That whole Chicago team seemed to be clean house. 
And it's ridiculous because he's trying to set a new culture and standard, but he's going too far and above. Whereas I think Coach Kenny has an understanding and a cohesion with the front office and with his players, and he's got to buy in from them. You know, every time you hear D'Angelo Russell post-game, you know, obviously we uh, probably construe things uh, in, in different ways when, you know, D'Angelo Russell, he's asked, you know, uh, was he happy with the fact that he wasn't played in, in the closing minutes? And he's like, you know, whatever coaches asked of me, you can only take him from face value. And he has still continued to perform. He hasn't sulked or whatever. He hasn't sort of, you know, created a rift within the team. You know, the team is still together. Um, so I, I think that that speaks volumes to Coach Kenny because he has been, you know, I, I think you can, I, I would say probably more so than than Sean Marks been the culture setter. I think Sean Marks has provided all of the avenues for him and all of the resources, but it's ultimately on the coach to sort of set the culture, set the standard in terms of practices, in terms of game day. And you hear plenty of other guys around the NBA who aren't Nets fans and who are just general media and pundits and they say that they just love watching the Nets play and you couldn't say that about the you know, plenty of other teams I think that coach Kenny is probably in a, a, a rung where he's you know still yet to be determined but he is doing a lot of good things right now and for those that you know continue to doubt him then you need to also recognize the good that he's done because you know it, it's it's a folly to to just ignore all the good that he's done and just focus solely on the bad. I think, you know, going to this, I think you, I'm not just looking at this year. I'm looking at his whole, you know, stint with the net so far. And I, you have to be happy with what he's done. I don't think you really can be unhappy because he's given us players when the nets really had nothing. You know, you look at guys like we already mentioned, Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, the development of Karis Avert, development of Jared Allen. And you mentioned D'Angelo and not getting mad with him. D'Angelo, first thing he did on that big interview after the Raptors game was defend the coaching staff. He said, you know, the criticism they were getting was unfair. And that now you see him, you know, one of the players who was benched in the fourth quarter at times go out there and defend him. I think that says a lot. And one thing I like about Kenny, he doesn't think he's the best coach. He doesn't think that he's Greg Popovich or Brad Stevens. He knows he needs to improve. And that's something that players can appreciate. He admits when he's wrong. One thing I've always liked about him, too, and you mentioned some of the other guys around the league that have worked with him, like Al Horford, Kyle Korver. You know, Horford mentioned he's one of the hardest working guys, coaches in the gym. He just gets in there and he grinds with you. And I think players can really appreciate that and another thing like you mentioned jack not only the media members but hearing other nba coaches really give them props and for the system that they run it's so modern and fits for the nba i mean if they had better talent the schemes that they run are great you know what i mean the ball movement high three-point shooting you know either layups or threes same thing defensively we're not going to let them shoot threes we're not let them get left we're going to force them mid-range shots i think philosophy wise i love what he does obviously the details and managing the game still need to improve rotations substitution patterns need to improve but also you know the devil's advocate could just be like you know the talent isn't necessarily there has he even coached an all-star player yet other than brooke Lopez? and he also turned him into a three-point shooter and so dominant tonight against the Raptors hitting some step back three. He's seen so a lot of players that didn't even know they could do it. You can't doubt that. But I think what a lot of people would sort of, you know, argue and, and maybe they would probably say, look, he's just a, a glorified player development coach. Uh, I, I get what I get that to a sense because, you know, that's probably been his key skill so far and his key takeaway. But uh, I think we need to wait and sort of before we make uh, a, a, an entire judgment and, you know, make rash decisions about, you know, the, the future of Kenny. Because like he has said, you know, we've mentioned, you know, he's not perfect. And he's mentioned he's not perfect. Um, I mentioned before as well, I just want to continue to see that passion uh, from him. And I want him to sort of, you know, portray that through the media as well, because we know how much he is invested in games 
and like all coaches pretty much. But, you know, I want to see that reflected in, you know, the, the post-game presses. Uh, and he has shown that in wins, but in losses, I want to see the frustration from him. You know, I want him to see, you know, he's like, okay, I'm not happy with some of these guys. You know, I'm not happy with the officials or, or whatever it might be because I think that that's going to seep through the culture as well because we do have, you know, really young leaders and young uh, stars on the rise. So I think he needs to sort of, you know, that's one thing. And it's not a criticism because, you know, if he's going to continue this sort of politician route, uh, I, I don't really care. It's not that uh, necessarily my cup of tea, but it doesn't change uh, his coaching philosophy and the more important things. I'm sort of just nitpicking, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we do. That's, you know, our job here is to break it down in all multiple aspects. But for me, I think the big factor still, like you said, Jack, the player development has been his key skill. And I think that's not something to underrate because you see teams around the league, just perfect example, Orlando Magic. They had all these great players. They had Tobias Harris. They had Victor Lodipo. Alfred Payton was even having a good year in New Orleans before he got hurt. They couldn't develop in Orlando and they ended up going elsewhere and they got nothing for them, essentially. So now you have a coach that you know is going to get the best out of guys that allows you to feel more confident. Obviously, Obviously, we said, I, I know personally, I agree with all the philosophies he has. It's just more so about getting some of the, the smaller details in the game, the in-game stuff down. And, you know, that's going to come with more experience. He was, he's been coaching for a while, but a lot internationally, a little bit in the NBA. And most of his roles has been player development. So it's almost like he's uh, learning on the run. Yeah, it's about developing his instincts, so to speak, yeah. knowing when to sort of, and I think, you know, the, the best coaches sort of, you know, we saw Steve Kerr last season. He's just like, look. I don't even need to coach these guys. They need to coach themselves. Exactly. Uh, but at the same, uh, right now, there is no way that, that the Brooklyn Nets are even close to being in such a situation because, like you mentioned, Nick, the talent on board and in terms of where the Nets want to be, you know, it's it's not. But that's what you want to do. You want to coach players so they become coaches themselves out on the court. And I think we're starting to see glimpses of that going forward. You know, I think a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie will one day make a, a great coach. And I think a lot of that has to do with having a role model like uh, Kenny Atkinson as his co- head coach. So uh, I think you know you want to coach leads, you want to coach communicators. And I think that that's one key aspect that he is doing very, very well as, in terms of communicating to his players. Maybe not so much to guys like, you know, Kenneth Freed or D'Angelo Russell at times, but, you know, we don't see what happens behind closed doors. Exactly. And I think another thing to think about is just like, what the Nets goal is this season. We don't know directly. Obviously they want to be competitive. They want to improve, but how much is it about developing and still setting the culture? It's only a couple years in and they want to have this culture set in stone and doing, making mistakes and keeping guys in sometimes isn't the right thing to do. Or sometimes it's playing the younger guys and letting them get more minutes. So I think the verdict is still out for him. I think he's done a great job so far, but a lot of that's just been the player development. It's been putting in the philosophy. Now it's about managing the game and taking that next step. And that's something we're going to see probably more of next season when they're able to get some better pieces hopefully in here yeah i mean a lot of fans are frustrated with the fans like why can't we judge him now why can't we judge him now when is the time uh i think you know we sort of said that this season you can make certain judgments about him and we sort of have and if he doesn't make a certain improvements and you know when uh, extra talent gets on the roster and the net should be pushing for and there are you know higher expectations on him but you know i think if you're going generally by the expectations on him you know, he might have, in certain aspects, you know, not exceeded them. But I think for the most part, he's exceeded them and, and the team as a whole. Yeah, I think the combination of him and Sean having a good relationship and getting guys in here that he can work with and make better and give the Nets assets moving forward where now they can kind of work and build this roster up. Because 
it's easy to forget where the Nets were at, where they really had absolutely no young talent, no culture. They were just a laughing stock of the NBA, and that's no longer the case. They're getting respect from other coaches, other teams, other broadcast teams, other NBA media members. So in part of that is Kenny, part of that is Sean, part of that is the entire organization and the players. But I think it's a little bit too early to be unhappy with what he's done. And also, you lose your closer. You know, Levert was closing for the Nets in these big games. He's hit some game winners this year already. And then not having him trying to adjust on the run, it's not only on the coach, it was on the players not adjusting. And I think now the next stretch will have a better idea what's going on. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's uh, a game-by-game situation. And I think, you know, it's very easy to sort of make rash judgments and sort of, you know, hyperbolic sort of statements about the his general future with the with the organization. But, you know, uh, I think once we have, you know, greater body of work, you know, it's much easier to sort of go. Because, you know, you look on the fact that we beat the Toronto Raptors. Do we do that without Kenny Atkinson and his schemes and his philosophies and his play development? Certainly not. But at the same time, you know, uh, he has made his mistakes and in terms of, you know, the player execution and, and other things as well. So I think, you know, he has done more than a good job, but there is plenty of room to improve. And he has acknowledged that and we have acknowledged that. Exactly. And we're hoping that, honestly, I know I'm personally hoping that he can develop and become the coach that we want him to be because I've liked what he's done so far with Brooklyn and the relationships you see around the league and the respect he has makes the Nets more enticing. And the Nets wouldn't be a target by other free agents or other agents on the market saying they want their players to come here if it wasn't for Kenny in the culture. So he's he's had his hand in that. But moving on from there, touching on Karis LeVert, who I think this season was probably playing like a top 50 player. So my question is if you, for you, other than LeVert, if he comes back 100% healthy and continues to improve, he's probably top 50. Who else on the Nets roster next season could be a top 50 player? I think there's generally three players, Nick, that we could probably put in that conversation. And, you know, it's Jared Allen, it's D'Angelo Russell, and it's Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, I think D'Angelo Russell, you know, if he makes an all-star team, does that make him a top 50 player? Yeah, probably around that sort of mark. But if you're looking to the top 50 sort of player series that uh, Corey and I did for GGBasketball.com, you know, guys like Tobias Harris, Lou Williams, Gary Harris, you know, Robert Cummington, these sort of players are very, very good players. So to take that sort of leap, which, you know, again, Coach Kenny mentioned in the preseason, it's going to take some real work and some real major strides. So um, I think the most likely candidate for me is D'Angelo Russell because his ceiling is the highest out of those three. I think Spencer Dimity has a shot at becoming a sort of the prototypical backup guard in the NBA. But I think he is more of a 70s sort of guy, maybe, you know, uh, early 60s. And Jared Allen as well, who I've done a piece for basketball.com as one of the maybe top eight, top 10 centers in the league. But, you know, in a position where he's around the sort of mark of a guy like Steven Adams, who has taken further strides and in the defensive player of the year conversation, Al Horford has fallen off a little bit. So uh, I think you roll the dice and say it's those sort of three. But for me, I'd probably go... Uh, judging by sort of age and uh, and general on-court production, I'd go D'Lo, I'd go Spencer, and then I'd go Jared. So, yeah, I'm actually – I have Jared first. Okay. I think Jared's two-way ability gives him the biggest chance to make the jump because we've already seen the potential for the defensive impact. If he was able to – you know, you know this. We're both, you know, in our mid to late 20s that after you kind of hit – you kind of get that grown man age where you start to put on muscle, you put on size a little bit. If Jared Allen could do that this summer, I believe he's 20, turning 21. So he adds that size. We already see the other skill sets there, the instincts there. Defensive his defensive awareness has taken a major jump this year. We see him attacking the offensive boards. We see a little bit of, you know, anti-dexterous, you know, shooting with his left and his right hand around the rim, the ability to play in that pick and roll. The corner three is developing. And I, I love 
from him from the New York Post today. He wants to be great. He doesn't even know how great he can be. I think if there's one guy I feel the safest about who's going to probably have, you know, the lowest floor out of all three of them, I feel like it's Jared Allen. I just think he's a perfect fit for the NBA. You know, D'Angelo, I'd probably have second. And Spencer, like you said, I also think he has a very high floor as well. I think he could probably get into at least a top 100 maybe next year. D'Angelo has the potential to get into the top 50, but he also has the potential to not be in the top 100 next year. So I think it's uh, Jared Allen's the guy that I'm really looking forward to, and I think the strides can really come. And a lot of it is just physical development. Yeah, there is a lot of it is physical development. There are a lot of, you know, young centers on the right side. I sort of, you know, uh, I'm interested to sort of see, you know, our, one of our very close friends, Corey Waldron, the center uh, of the future there, you know, is it Miles Turner, is it DeMontis Sabonis? Those sort of two guys, you know, are guys that have potential to sort of be around that mark as well. And for a guy like Jared Allen, who is a couple of years younger as well and has probably as much, if not more, defensive capabilities, it's going to be on him to continue to make, you know, huge strides. And, you know, you know, he's uh, certainly got all the capabilities. He's got the mindset to do so. And I think he's got the, the right system and, and the right coaching around him. Because, you know, if we're sort of going by, you know, Clint Capella is probably, you know, Rudy Gobert, these sort of guys are, you know, I think the ceiling of a Jared Allen is probably uh, an early 30s uh, by, you know, when he's at his sort of peak. Uh, but I think that that would be, you know, still a very wonderful player and a guy who is, you know, number two, number three and, you know, the defensive sort for a championship contender. Exactly. I think that's what he can be. And I think the defensive value is going to be there where he can really be that guy you look to. And, you know, I, I don't have the Nets numbers in front of me on off, but I would imagine defensively he has a huge impact. I know the advanced metrics are on his side for some of the stats. Uh, I look at him, you know, on the defensive end, really having a chance, but offensively, it's kind of unknown. We've seen development that we didn't necessarily expect this early in his career. You know, we've seen him knock down a couple threes. We've seen the passing improve. We've seen the touch around the rim improve. And we already know about the physical attributes where he can get up, dunk on people and whatnot. So it's really interesting to see what else he can add to his game because he's so young. Yeah, the fact that he is, you know, he's 20 years old. And the fact that, you know, five years time and what we've seen of him, we've mentioned this before in terms of season reviews uh, on him, the fact that he's shown so much development, there's been, you know, I, I think, you know, big progress from him this season as well as a rebound, especially on the offensive end. I think the three-point shot is still going to be an area where, you know, if he wants to become, you know, that top 50 player, it's going to need to be something. But at the same time, I think schematically, he's not being asked to do it as much uh, these sort of days. But what do you think is the number one thing that is going to be the reason why he will become a top 50 player? Is it the defense like you mentioned, Nick? Yeah, I think defense. I also would make the argument if you gave him another a stretch four that was reliable, would open up the paint in the pick and roll situation, he'd be able to put up more points. So I think offensively, you know, some scheme thing with players around him would help him kind of take another jump. But I think defensively, the awareness he provides and the shot blocking ability where he really has an impact on other players, even when he's not blocking the shot. And we've seen him block some of the best guys in the league. You know, we know about the Blake Griffin, uh, you know, rejection at the rim and things like that. And I think the passing also something that's really underrated. And also, I just love the mindset and the mentality that he has. And I feel like he has a mean chip on his shoulder, but he doesn't really show it because he knows that people question him coming to the NBA and I just like everything about him personality wise so that kind of adds to it too I'm not locking him in to be a top 50 next year but in my eyes I think he has the best chance yeah he is has a, a really really good mindset and a, and a really well-rounded game everything is, is certainly uh, going well for him so uh, it's going to be interesting to see um, how it all develops for him 
And one thing I liked in the New York Post interview, too, he said uh, they mentioned what's the most important thing with blocking shots. He said, obviously, timing, but also knowing the personnel. And that shows you that he's already studying players around the league. And that only help him when he kind of gets switched on the other guys, depending on how the Nets adjust their scheme. That'd be something where we can kind of see his development. Is he able to really switch on other guards? That's going to only boost up his defensive value. I know you and I were very impressed his rookie season in a game against Atlanta where he kind of locked up Dennis Schroeder. We haven't seen it quite as much, but there's been scenarios where he's put the clamps on other guards and wings where you didn't necessarily expect it. Yeah, exactly. Um, funnily enough, Nick, I did uh, did a quick little search on NBA.com for his uh, ratings. Uh, he's actually, uh, we are actually better when offensively when he's on the court. So 5.3 points better per 100 possessions, but actually 3.8 points uh, better, worse defensively when he's off. So obviously you take into account his uh, his opponents and the fact that he is a starter, but that was quite surprising to me. Uh, it's it's interesting to see maybe the fact that he's surrounded by a guy like D'Angelo Russell sort of brings him down. But I, I think that you take with that number what you will because he is, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a positive on the defensive end. Yeah, because I believe he's also second in the Nets in defensive rating behind only Ed Davis at 107. He's at 109. Moose is at 109, but obviously he's only played seven games. That's been mostly garbage time. And in comparison, other than Ed Davis, you know, who's offensive rating of 130 to 107, you know, we got uh, Jared Allen at 125 to 109. And obviously he's going up against the starters and playing against some of the bigger and better centers where the first unit has their issues uh, defensively, like we mentioned with D'Angelo sometimes and some of the other guys who Allen Crabb was have been great. And Joe Harris is obviously had trouble with some of the more athletic wings exactly exactly so, I, i'm the I, i'll take the eye test on that one but um <laughs> anything else in the top 50 jack yeah it'll be interesting to see nick because you know uh, what is the ceiling of a rodeon's courts i don't think it's in that sort of uh, realm of possibility but uh I, i've mentioned before and i'll continue to mention it if the if the nets draft someone with a uh, tremendous upside and we get lucky in the draft and i think that there is you know a very high possibility that a guy like rj barrett you know cam reddish zion williamson those guys are you know very top 50 sort of ready players in terms of their talent and upside as well yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like Luca, who's probably already top 50 this season. So anytime Easily. yeah, you get a top, top draft pick like that, it's going to really change your franchise. Now, moving on to some other topics uh, that you kind of helped me with as well. Would you rather trade for Frank Nilakina or Markel Fultz? Uh, personally, I'm a Nilakina man, Nick. We saw yesterday what he was able to produce when he was on the court. Finally, you know, our boy Mike Ryan uh, is working, uh, did a nice piece on Frank Nilakina and sort of, you know, the, the situation surrounding him and why Fisdale, it continues to d- give him DNPs, you know, uh, over guys like Trey Burke and Emmanuel Moutier, who are good-ish, but, you know, Frank Nilakina has such you know, high upside and he's never going to realize it if he's not on the court. So I think it'd be a perfect fit as well in terms of defensively. You know, he would automatically be our best defender. And I don't mind this three ball. You know, he hit a couple against us. You know, just good things happen yeah, when he is on the court. Against Charlotte too, I think he knocked down four threes in five minutes. So, like, you, if you're looking at that automatically, you know, I, I think, you know, you've already got at least, you know, a, a relatively low floor for him, which is, you know, one of the best defensive point guards in the NBA and one of the best guard-to-guard uh, guard, guard, guard defenders in the NBA. So I think if that's his floor, then you can just have him out there for defensive possessions and in crunch time and such. Then I think that is much better than a guy like Markel Fultz, who you, there are so many questions surrounding him. And he, yes, he is number one pick. And yes, you know, he has, you know, probably the higher upside offensively. 
But Izzy, the floor is, you know, that low. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot scarier of a proposition. Yeah, I think you look at Neil Aquina and like you said, Jack, the defense is already there. We saw him against the Nets. We've seen him against other guards in the league. Obviously, he's not elite yet. His, you know, defense still needs little touches here and there uh, detail-wise because we saw Spencer Dinwiddie blow by him a couple times in the clutch. But I think Neil Aquina is a guy I think that's more of a fit for the Nets Nets team. And I would love to fit next to D'Angelo or then you throw him and Karis LeVert both out there. Now you have two, you know, really good uh, perimeter defenders, something that the Nets have really lacked for a long time. So I'm a Neil Aquina train. I also think you might be able to get him a little bit easier. Obviously, trading with your crosstown rivals is a little bit difficult, but Markel Folds, it seems like being number one overall pick not that long ago, the Sixers are going to ask for too much. Yeah, and the money that he would com- he's commanding That's right it. now, it's, you know, it's it's very questionable for a guy like me. And I don't think that he's, you know, it would be almost a glut, you know, sort of dead money on, on a roster. Uh, and especially that's not what we want uh, as the Brooklyn Nets and, and the front office as well. Yeah, if you asked me maybe a year or two ago, I might have went with Fultz because I was looking more si- for the upside. But I think in the Nets situation right now, they're looking to be better uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, like you said, Jack, the floor for Frank is maybe worst case scenario. He's possibly a three and D, you know, point card that you can bring off the bench. I think that's a great fit for almost any team in the league. Now, talking trades, Jack, obviously December 15th is when, you know, the trades can really start cooking. That's when you can start to trade some of the guys you signed in free agency. Now, considering the Nets roster, who are some guys you think will possibly trade or you'd like to see be moved between December 15th and the trade deadline? I don't think that there'll be many moves, Nick, but I think some guys that will be around the conversations are guys like Kenneth Fareed, Damari Carroll, maybe even Shabazz Napier, and maybe even Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, it's almost sacrilege to say Spencer Dinwiddie, but you know there'll be teams asking about him. Whether you know Sean Marks answers those calls remains to be seen. But I think Damari Carroll makes the most sense because you know he is a three and D wing. You know, he's on an expiring contract. You know, he was already been uh, in trade rumors last season around that trade deadline, you know, in teams like Detroit and New Orleans times at, and even Houston as well. You know, Zach Lowe mentioned in a pod uh, during uh, the preseason that, you know, he sees, you know, Demari, that, that was the exact idea that he brought up, you know, Demari Cowell to Houston. So, I mean, I would be, it, he, he makes the most sense. You know, does Jared Dudley end up leaving? You know, I'm not 100% sure. I think you have to keep some sort of leadership presence on the roster, mentorship presence on the roster. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether any of those guys are moved. But, you know, I think that it and Shabazz Napier, the reason why I brought him up as well is because, you know, he seems to be at times usurped in the rotation and not utilized as often. I think, you know, whether it's a sort of um, a move that Sean Marks moves to make, you know, out of the, the kindness of his heart because he wants to see Shabazz get some minutes somewhere and he deserves some playing time because he is, you know, a proven uh, solid backup. So whether he decides to do that as well will be, you know, an interesting proposition. Yeah, I mean, and he's got a small cap cap number at 1.9 this year, 1.8 next year, you know, maybe get a second round pick for him because they haven't necessarily used him a ton. And I think on a team like the Nets, his defensive, you know, his uh, defensive weakness kind of sticks out a little bit more on a more defensive minded team where they could hide him with some better defenders. I think it'd be a little bit easier to play him, but pretty much everything you mentioned, Jack, I agree with. I think most case, and it's going to be the expiring guys. They're not necessarily going to look to trade any of the guys on the roster that they have under contract because their numbers are so friendly. Yeah, it's all about the numbers. It's and I think you know Ed it's Davis all about an interesting guy too. You know, obviously we've absolutely loved Ed, but he maybe could get them something, and the Nets didn't feel confident about resigning him next year. 
Well, I think we should already sign him to the max, but we'll <laughs> leave that for another day. Um, no, I just everyone loves Ed Davis, and I think you can't argue with the fact that how good he has been. Um, so yeah, I think if there are teams that are looking for a backup center, he's probably the best backup center in the league in terms of what he can provide in the in the minutes on the court and what you ask for a sort of backup big, give you some energy, get you some rebounding, get you some offensive putbacks, and you know play some uh, more than passable defense. But um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how it all plays out because, you know, Sean Marks, you know, he's never going to say no to deals and no to phone calls. So how it all, you know, plays out, we sort of mentioned, you know, D'Angelo Russell, you know, the question that got asked of us as he get traded, who knows as, as there's anything that can happen in this league. Yeah, and it'll be interesting too of the Nets, where they're at in the standings, if they're looking to compete, if they really think that being more competitive will help them get a a big free agent next year, if that's their goal. We really don't know what they're thinking. Are they maybe going to put two lesser players together and try to get another first-round pick or something, and now they're going to have major assets going to that offseason? You know, we do see a lot of big all-stars be traded at that uh, NBA draft day, so there's a lot of different possibilities out there. I mean, the only guys that I'm really confident that will be on the roster next year are Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, and probably Rodion Kurutz. Other than that, I, I'm not 100% confident about anybody else. Yeah, it's it's really hard to sort of just lock guys in because, you know, the, the roster isn't set and it shouldn't be set, uh, especially when you are not a playoff contender like we are. And the only non-expiring guy that I would like to see them move, and that's Alan Crabb. And he's technically expiring as a player option for the following season, which he's going to pick up. Maybe if Crabb could pick up his numbers, I think it would kind of make sense to get rid of him, even if he starts to pick it up, because it just is too scary to have a player that can be so good or so bad. Yeah, I think, you know, with where we are at right now with Alan Crabb, unless, you know, some uh, ridiculous, ridiculous things change, you almost have to attach an asset for him because of, you know, the number that he's being paid at. Yeah, exactly. The only other thing I could possibly think of is maybe if you're trading him to someone else that has a two-year deal where it's maybe a little bit lesser number and or a team is just really desperate for three-point shooting and you think Crab can bring it to them. Yeah, he has to be part of some sort of package. Exactly. But uh, Jack, uh, what do you got for me? Speaking of packages, Nick, uh, Nets region on Instagram, this is the sort of key topic that I took took the screenshot. I'm like, okay, this has got to come up on a buzz. So it was a mock trade between the Nets and the Pelicans. The Pelicans received Spencer Dinwiddie and Alan Crabb in return for Solomon Hill and a 2019 first-round pick, which is protected. And if you're looking at where the Pelicans are at now, there's they're certainly up and down. So uh, whether those protections are, you know, 1 to 20, 1 to 10, uh, it'll be interesting interesting to see if that were to occur but uh it's certainly an intriguing uh package and trade deal yeah i think looking at this deal you'd have to be a lot you have to be very confident d'angelo russell being a point guard and a guy that you're looking to lock up no matter what the number is in free agency and i think solomon hill you know we've seen him play he he just doesn't have it you know they signed him to a bigger deal when those uh, salary cap numbers were inflated in the first round pick if we were to trade them dinwiddie that's a major hole in their team and I would expect New Orleans to really pick it up because Drew Holiday's really excelled when he's got to play the two guard and had, doesn't have to manage the show. And Anthony Davis, Spencer Dinwiddie pick and roll would probably be very good. So I'd probably lean against this trade because I like Spencer and I like the potential he gives the Nets. And I'm not saying they need to lock him in as a point guard, but I like him in that extension number to have him as a trade asset after that. I think right now you're not probably getting the best value and then you're just taking on another bad contract it's only helping you by five mil i would only say do this if you really think that you're going to get a big fish this summer yeah the Cavs obviously offered you know a first round uh it ended up being yeah something like that so spencer's has exceeded that value already 
you know, where uh, do the Pelicans finish right now? You know, they're outside the playoff race. They're probably around the 10 to 15 range. We've obviously got the Denver Nuggets pick as well. So uh, I'd much rather keep Spencer doing. I think he's a much more valuable asset. But, you know, like you mentioned, Nick, imagine him on the New Orleans Pelicans. He would add so much to that team. And, you know, he would be, you know, almost the, the perfect sort of fit with Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis, the sort of perfect sort of number three sort of guy alongside them. Um, it would certainly give them a lot. But, I don't think it makes as much sense for the Nets, though. You know, it depends on how much, you know, uh, faith, like you mentioned, you know, the team has in D'Angelo Russell and what sort of, you know, he has continued to show by that sort of stage. I think Spencer Dimity as well, you know, over the past season and a half has proven to be quite durable. D'Angelo Russell has had his injury history as well. So are you investing in, you know, long-term in D'Angelo Russell just alone? Uh, I think that there is a lot of risk in that. So, um I think it makes sense, a lot of sense for the Pelicans. And the fact that we would get off Alan Crabb as well, it makes some sense for the Brooklyn Nets. But uh, I would be surprised if that were to become a reality. Yeah, it's like, it's five mil and probably ending up, you know, like we said, Spencer being such a great fit would boost him in the standings. Is $5 million in cap space and possibly a late first round pick enough to move Spencer Dinwiddie, who's already looks like he could be at least a long-term backup point guard for your team. And you could sign him to a, a really fair contract. Yeah, it's uh, it's not worth it, but um, who knows? Yeah, the, never the, know. and there could be other assets included, maybe another second round pick or you know Frank Jackson or something that make it a little bit more enticing. That's it. There's always you know all these deals. It's 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 a fascinating one to analyze still. Yeah, exactly. Anything else via social media, Jack, or that's about it. That's it, mate. Um, most of the other stuff is sort of stuff that we've already discussed. Uh, we tend to cover pretty much everything on the buzz. So, you know, we've got it covered. Yeah, we got it covered. As always, guys, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate all the support. You can check out the show, show on iTunes, Bob Talk Radio, OGGBasketball.com, NatsRepublic.com, Dash Radio, and YouTube. Jack, always a pleasure, and always thank everybody for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.